Hey guys, welcome to episode 41 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We just want to start off the show by giving a huge thanks to everyone who left all of those great iTunes reviews for the past two weeks. You guys are so amazing and we love the support that you show and backing us up when people can get a little bit nasty. That was really nice. We really like having bodyguards sometimes. (laughs) Over the past year and a half, we have gained an amazing podcast family. We love each and every one of you. And we wanted to wish you a safe and happy holiday season. Due to illness in my family, I'm going to be spending some much-needed extended time with family, friends, and Johnny during my time off from school and grad school this holiday season. So unfortunately, we won't be releasing a new episode during the week of Christmas. However, we do have two previously recorded Patreon episodes that we're going to release between now and and our next episode on January 12th. If you want access to that, you can join our Patreon family at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We promise after this break, we'll come back with amazing episodes and continued extended research. But before we begin, we just want to give a huge shout out to Tabitha from South Galveston, Indiana. Your boyfriend Caleb was so sweet and reached out to us asking if we had any merchandise so he could give it to you for Christmas because you've been a fan since we started. We just want to say thank you so much for listening and hanging in there since the beginning. Caleb just wants you to know that he loves you and is looking forward to so many more Christmases with you. That's the sweetest thing ever. Good job, Caleb. That's really, that was really good. So we just want you guys to both enjoy the holidays so much, and thanks for listening. Let's get right into the special holiday edition episode of True Crime Couple. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. The holidays are a special time of year. No matter what you celebrate, you can feel a difference in the air. It's when people, even in places like New Jersey, tend to be just a little bit more kind to each other. It's a time to spend with family and reflect on a year that has passed and lay out plans for the new one ahead. Maybe it's because of this that when a tragedy takes place, it hurts everyone just a little bit more. That is why the story we're going to tell you today is going to be all the more heartbreaking. On December 24th, 2007, the 10 members of the Anderson family were supposed to gather for their annual Christmas Eve festivities. By the end of the day, six of them would not survive to see Christmas morning. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The Anderson family lived in a small farming community that grew in size as commuters from Seattle were looking for a nice town to raise their growing families. Wayne and Judy Anderson had a similar idea in 1996 when they bought an 11-acre piece of property in the town of Carnation, Washington. On December 24th, the two were preparing for a visit from their three children. Their eldest daughter, Mary Victoria, who was 41, had promised to come with her youngest son. The couple was excited that their daughter was coming from 25 miles away in South Bend. They had always had a strange relationship with her. Mary Victoria was Judy's daughter from her first marriage. However, Wayne had embraced the girl as his own, adopting her when he married Judy. 
but just because she was adopted didn't mean that Mary Victoria accepted Wayne as her father. When she was a teenager, she ran away several times, the longest of which was when she was 16 years old. She was staying with a friend's brother, whom she was having a relationship with, and an unplanned pregnancy was the result of that relationship. Eventually, the young girl returned home, but always seemed to remain the wild child of the Anderson family. Their middle child, and only son, Scott, was also supposed to come with his beautiful new family. Scott, who was 32 years old, had a great job in commercial construction. At this point, he had been married to his high school sweetheart, Erica, for six years. They had two children, Olivia, who was five, and Nathan, who was three. Lastly, the Andersons' youngest daughter, Michelle, who was 29 years old, was supposed to attend with her boyfriend of five years, Joe. Michelle was always the baby of the family and was always taken care of. She was different than her siblings. She was extremely shy and tended to spend her time sketching and writing short stories. At this time, Michelle and Joe lived in a trailer on the property, rent-free, as they were going through a hard financial time. They had been living there for about a year at this point. But as we are on the topic of the trailer that was present on the property of the Andersons, it's important for you to know that it wasn't as easy as you would think it would be for the Andersons to allow their daughter to stay in a trailer on their property. When Wayne and Judy bought the 11-acre land from an older gentleman in 1996, they did so at the protest of the man's family. They claimed that their father was not competent and therefore did not understand what he was doing by selling the property. However, he was deemed competent by the courts and the sale of the land to the Andersons went through. The one who was the most angry about this transaction was the man's son, Buck. Buck lived in the trailer on the property and had refused to leave. He was paying rent to the Andersons, but they made it very clear they didn't want him on the property. But they felt bad forcing him to leave his home. And it wasn't until Michelle and Joe needed a trailer that the Andersons chose to finally take legal action and kick Buck off the property. This situation occurred around the holiday season the year prior. So it's kind of, could you imagine on your property there's someone living there that you didn't feel comfortable with? Yeah, I mean, well, right away you could tell that there's animosity there. And like it's during the holiday time. Imagine if like someone kicked you out of your, your house during the, holidays. during the holidays. It's like the most scummy thing to do. Right, so that's why when the situation that's going to go down with the Andersons happens, Buck really becomes kind of suspect number one because maybe he was getting revenge for what happened during the last holiday season. Oh, yeah, for sure. Interesting. But, I mean, as the Andersons, I don't think I would have allowed him to live there for so long. Think about it. If it's 2007, he lived on the property for 10 years. Well, you also have to realize that to maintain a home and everything on it, plus 11 acres, probably costs a lot of money. Right. So they probably figured, hey, listen, if we leave, let him live on you know, the property with the trailer, it's 11 acres. It's not like he's literally in our backyard. Yeah, but, well, it's a quarter of a mile away, so it's pretty close. I just think that I would want someone, a tenant that liked me. Buck definitely did not like them. But in a perfect world, I mean... Does a tenant ever... I mean, yeah, nobody ever likes their... A tenant doesn't like the landlord. The landlord doesn't like the tenant. It's true. For the most part. I hate our landlords. They're jerks. Well, they're just annoying. But anyway... So what happened is, obviously, I know this is like a few days behind schedule... We had an electrical fire in our apartment. Yes. And it was, tr- everything's safe. 
everything's good, no damage, we're safe, everything's fine. But it was an annoying traumatic experience at like midnight. Yeah. The other day. It was and pretty it crappy. It was pretty <laughs> crappy. There was there was a silver lining to it though, and that was the fact that uh, we both got to take the day off from work. That was nice. And we did go to IHOP at like two in the morning. We did. So I haven't been to IHOP having pancakes in a while. So hey. The downside is everything smells like burnt rubber, and I made a fool of myself in front of our town's emergency services. I, <laughs> John was very embarrassed. I thought the car, the cop car that came when I initially called nine one one, which this was actually the first time that I've ever called nine one one. And I had to, like, I apologized to them. Yeah. I'm like, hi, sorry. Um, sorry to bother you. I think our apartment's on fire. <laughs> and then she, very she proceeded to wave them down, kind of like in Titanic when Rose is on the piece of raft. <laughs> and, like, they, like, she thinks that they don't see her. I don't know. You get my point, though. I think you get the imagery. Yeah. Apparently, the cop was trying to park. But in my mind, he was driving away. So I chased after him like flailing my arms it was and i had to be like i had to actually say okay stop stop stop. yeah (laughs) don't do that please just sit here stand here (laughs) he came in to check on the on the apartment and the weird smell that was in it (laughs) there was a bottle of wine well i mean i didn't just open it but there was a bottle of wine and a glass of wine on the dining room table and I'm like, um, I just only had one glass. Like, I felt the need to explain myself to the police officer. And he's like, ma'am, that's the wine did not start the fire. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone just thinks I'm a maniac. So what are you going to do? They probably have it flagged. If this apartment ever calls 911, approach with caution. She likes She's wine. out of her mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry for that sidetrack. So getting back to Christmas Eve in 2007, it is around 5 p.m. And another call is going to come into 911. Not like the kind of call I made, but a different one. The operator, exhausted from the influx of calls that always come in during the holiday season, is going to answer. Hello, 911, what's your emergency? But there's no answer on the other end of the line. She hears what she thinks is a party in the background. Again, she says, hello. And again, hello. But there's no response. Just as she is about to see if anyone's there again, the line goes dead, and the call's ended. Luckily, the line has been open long enough that the call could be traced to a landline in the home of the Andersons. As is protocol, she dispatches the sheriff deputies to check on the Andersons. Thirty minutes after the call is made, the deputies pull up to the front gate of the Anderson property. The gate is locked, and there's private property signs all over the gate and the surrounding trees. Because the driveway was about a quarter mile long and uphill, the house wasn't even in sight of the deputies. And Washington has very strict privacy and stand-your-ground laws, which law enforcement obviously takes really seriously because it could be a dangerous situation if you're stepping on someone's private property without any cause. Also, the officers had been informed that there were the sounds of a party taking place. So they didn't think that they were going to a call where there was danger. They thought maybe a kid might have picked up the phone and called 911. It's the way they were dispatched is what made them feel a little bit more comfortable. So because they didn't have any sufficient legal basis, 
to enter the property, the deputies are going to make the decision to to just leave. I mean, that's... I mean, I can understand why, but at the same time, I feel like you don't dispatch a vehicle all the way there to just pretty much be like, yeah, everything's good. I'll take, I'll just, you know, take everyone's word for it. It's just a party and just turn around. Yeah, I know. I'd still go check it out. It's also kind of similar to the situation that we talked about in episode eight with Josephine County. They are stretched pretty thin, the deputies in this county, and they had a lot of other calls to get to. So they figured that maybe this is something that they could kind of just skip over. But we're going to learn what kind of role this could have played later on in the case if the deputies were to have approached the property. So let's take a break to talk about our first sponsor, Third Love. Third Love provides bras and underwear for everybody. Give yourself the gift of all-day comfort this year. Third Love is the industry leader in regards to the sizes they have available for their customers. There are 70 sizes, including their amazing half sizes. Third Love uses millions of real women's measurements to design their bras. Third Love offers double the number of sizes that most brands do offer. They have cups that go from A to H and bands up to 48. It is also a fact that 50% of women fall in between standard cup size. So that is why Third Love invented half cup sizing. Not only do they have sizes that you need, but these bras will feel amazing. Third Love promises to be the most comfortable bra you'll own. But it's so true. I love my Third Love 24-7 Perfect Coverage Bra. The strap never falls down and I can go an entire work day and anything life throws at me afterwards being 100% comfortable. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off of their first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash TCC now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash TCC for 15% off today. Okay, let's get back to the show. On December 26th, Jody's co-workers at the post office were beginning to worry. Usually they all reported early on the day after a holiday, as there was so much work to do. Judy was never late. In fact, she was always the first one who showed up. As the hours went by and their calls remained unanswered, the women grew more and more concerned. Her closest friend at work, a woman named Linda, volunteered to pay a visit to the Andersons just to make sure everything was all right. It's also a really good reason to leave work, too. So that was smart thinking, yeah, it's Linda. Like killing two birds with one stone. Yes. Check on my friend and leave work. Yep. Doesn't get any better than that. So when Linda's going to arrive on the property, she was also met by the locked front gate that the deputies were. However, Linda chose to walk up the steep quarter mile to the house. She knocked on the front door, and she didn't receive an answer. When she tried the front door, she realized that it was left open, something that she knew to be unusual. Linda went inside the house and called out for Jody and Wayne, but there was no response. So she walked in a little further, and she saw a man lying on the kitchen floor, a bullet wound in his head. She panicked, turned around, practically tripping over his body, and when she caught her balance and she looked ahead, she saw the body of a woman, shot several times, sitting up, in her arms, a little boy. Linda's eyes averted immediately, but when she looked to the right of the woman, 
She just saw more bodies. This time, the body of a little girl. Blood all over her holiday tights and black patent leather shoes. Delusional and in a panic, and immediately breathless, Linda places a call to 911. She tells them what she has found and that she's terrified. It's really clear that four people had been shot, and she didn't know if she herself was in any immediate danger. The killer could still be in the house. So when Linda placed the call, she stepped into the hallway, out of sight from the bodies. The dispatcher informed her that the safest thing she could do was to wait in the house for the arrival of the sheriffs. Linda recalled that every sound in the house terrified her. The 911 operator finally announced that the officers were just outside the house and she should open the door for them. When the sheriff's deputies approached the house, they had to do so prepared for an encounter with an active shooter. What made matters worse was that the house was surrounded by a heavily forested area. The shooter could be anywhere. After they made their way up to the house and got Linda to safety, the deputies cleared the house. They, like Linda, had found four bodies in a tight living room space. They confirmed to dispatch that, in fact, the call was correct and that they would need crime scene investigators, detectives, and backup sent to the property incarnation. The man on the floor, who had been shot at point-blank range in the head, was Scott Anderson. It appears he was shot in the face, and the bullet traveled into his neck. Erica had been shot several times in the head and upper body. It appeared that she had put up a struggle and eventually fell to the floor. She was propped up against the love seat, and in her arms was her three-year-old son, Nathan, one bullet in his head. Lying to the right of the young mother was her five-year-old daughter, Olivia. Detectives and crime scene technicians requested that the bodies not be moved until the scene was carefully analyzed. There was no evidence of a robbery or forced entry, so this wasn't a burglary gone bad. There was also two different shell casings found at the scene. One matched a 9mm semi-automatic, and the other was a three fifty-seven Magnum. So did the Andersons know who did this? Was there one killer with two guns, or two killers with two guns? The investigators had a lot of questions to answer. However, the most important question was... Where was everybody else? The property was searched, and it took many law enforcement officers to search the 11 acres. Michelle and Joe's trailer was empty, a filthy mess, but empty. Eventually, a shed was found, just beyond the tree line. This old wooden shed drew the attention of searchers because outside of the front door was a large lump beneath an astroturf carpet. Oh, growing up, we had... Remember, we I had the astroturf carpet... On my deck in my old house with my parents. Yes, I do yes. remember. <laughs> that was bad. That was not cool. It's like, what are we going for? Grass on our deck? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> what are you going to do? Okay. So when the carpet was lifted, the body of Wayne Anderson was found. It appeared that he was shot in the mouth with an exit wound underneath his chin. Very similar to the way that Scott Anderson was shot. When the shed was opened, Judy's body was discovered lying on the floor. She had been shot in the head and neck. Based on the scene and the appearance of the bodies, it was clear that they were not shot by the shed. Both of their socks were clean, so they would not have been able to make the long walk from the house to the shed without getting their socks dirty. Judy's body was clean, so it was apparent that she was carried to the shed, whereas Wayne's body had clearly been dragged, 
as there were drag marks in the grass and Wayne's shirt was filthy and cut up. Back inside the house, the crime scene investigators had sprayed luminol to try and detect any unseen blood at the scene. On the floor in the kitchen and on the wood floors in the family room, traces of blood were found in large circular patterns. It seemed that someone had tried to clean up the blood. That's why they were in circular patterns. Right. Like trying to mop it up with towels. They had not cleaned it at all, but they really hadn't cleaned it well at all. Blood actually pooled under the refrigerator, and I guess the shooter didn't see that it went there, so they didn't clean up any of the blood under the fridge. That's actually crazy that it went underneath the floor. The floor and went The fridge, I mean. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. The fridge, and they didn't even see it. Like, how do you not see that? They must have been in a panic. I would assume. I mean, I guess. I, I don't know. I feel like they had time. Whoever did it had time. I don't know how they didn't see it go under the... Obviously, it like doesn't end, so it goes underneath the fridge. They, yeah. It's obviously people who are definitely not experienced. Well, I mean, that's good. I, ho- I hope they're not. Yeah. I hope they're not, but... Okay. So, because of all this blood being found in that area and not in the living room, it was clear that Scott and his family were shot in the living room, like where they their bodies ended up. remaining so they're assuming that this is where wayne and judy were shot in the family room and in the kitchen okay back outside investigators received a lot of help from an unexpected source linda jody's co-worker under a little bit of a gossip here when the police were questioning her they let her know that six bodies were found and they told her who they were she told them that the entire this is when she told law enforcement the entire family history Everything from Mary Victoria to Michelle and that tenant buck that the family just couldn't shake. But then she told them that there was supposed to be four more people in that house and that they may have more bodies to find. While the searching of the property continued, investigators wanted to create a timeline. When were these family members murdered? And they figured the best way to determine this was to check phone records and see when the phone stopped being answered. Especially around Christmas. People are always calling. It's Christmas Eve. So phone records may be a good indication of when the family had right. died. Especially at the t- at this time of year. Right. You know, it's very active. And in 2007, cell phones, big. But, you know, we still had the flip phones. Maybe if you were super cool, you had an iPhone. Or a BlackBerry. Yeah, right? Yeah, right. BlackBerry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, BlackBerry. Only if you were cool. Only if you were cool. Yeah. I were still you, had a broken cool? flip phone. No, are you kidding me? Uh, I, I was I was cool. never cool. <laughs> I was cool. I had a Blackberry. Well, that's really, you're very privileged. I know. <laughs> Sorry. But they found something interesting in the phone records of the Andersons, and we know what it is. It's the 911 call that was placed at 5 p.m. So someone did call 911 from the house. The tape was listened to, and it was enhanced by audio. And... To the shock of law enforcement officers, it appears that the background noise wasn't a party at all. It was Erica screaming. And when they enhanced the audio, right before the call ended, they could decipher the words, no, not the kids. Wow. Pretty crazy, uh, right? That's intense. Now, when we talked about law enforcement not showing up, that call was placed at 5, but the deputies didn't arrive till like 5.30, 5.45. So we don't know if they would have stopped the killing, but most likely if the killers were cleaning up, they probably would have 
arrived at the scene while the killers were cleaning up. Or killer, sorry. Hmm. Right. I mean... Spoiler alert, sorry. There's two. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I suck. (laughs) Come on. Um, No, but you're right, though. I mean, I I think that, like, if they were... If they did go up that quarter mile or whatever it was... Right. Up to the house... They would have easily caught yeah, the person. It's all they needed to do was just drive up the fucking driveway. Yeah, and it, this could have been like a done deal. Yes, and it, it and it could. There's a possibility that it could have saved maybe somebody. Maybe possible. Okay, let's keep going. I don't want to give anything more away. Yeah, I'm already it's your terrible. Fault. So investigators are now on the search for Mary Victoria and Michelle. First, they needed to inform them about the death of their family members, and second. They need to ask them how they survived. Sheriffs were dispatched to Mary Victoria's home in South Bend to see if she was there. And she was. She told deputies that she and her son had gotten sick, and they decided last minute that they weren't going to go to Carnation for Christmas. So when told about the murder of the family, the deputies reported that she was distraught and that she fell to her knees crying. So they... Deciphered that as a as a normal reaction. Yeah, I mean that's normal. So the investigators are now on the search for Michelle and Joe, but she would make their jobs really easy for them. Michelle Anderson and her boyfriend Joe McEnroe had just actually driven up to the crime scene. Detectives were reluctant to approach. Who was going to be the one to tell this twenty nine year old woman that her parents, brother? sister-in-law, niece, and nephew had been murdered. Eventually, the head detective and his partner agreed to talk to Michelle and McEnroe separately to break the news and to get their side of the story. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor, Kopari. Sometimes it's the smallest changes that can have the biggest benefits. Here's an easy change you can make that your body will thank you for. Switching to aluminum-free deodorant. Recently, I made the switch with Kopari's coconut deodorant, and I don't think I could ever go back. Unlike most traditional deodorants, Kopari's deodorant is aluminum-free and vegan. It's also free of silicones, sulfites, parabens, GMOs, and baking soda, so it's great for sensitive skin. Kopari's deodorant fights odor with a plant-based actives such as sage oil and coconut oil. It doesn't leave behind a sticky white residue just the sweet, subtle scent of fresh coconut milk, and it outlasts your longest days. This is Kopari's number one selling product. They can barely keep it in stock. I love that they offer a deodorant subscription. You can just choose how often you want to receive it, and they ship it to you automatically, for free, so you never run out of deodorant again. Kopari also offers a money-back guarantee, so there's really no reason to not try it today. Go to koparibeauty.com slash TCC to make the safe switch today and save $5 off your first order when you subscribe. That's kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash TCC, koparibeauty.com slash TCC. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. So right away, both interviews were just going wrong. Michelle and McEnroe never asked once what the police were doing at the house or if everyone's all right. Now, this is super bizarre because it's not just a few police officers. It's basically the whole sheriff department searching the 11 acres. 
something's clearly wrong. And to not even be upset or ask what's happening is really bizarre. I guarantee you, if we asked our audience if they were in a similar situation, 99.9% of them would think, if even if they saw one fucking police car, that they would be like, hey, what's going on? Uh, everything okay? Yeah. If you see the whole department <laughs> in your driveway, yeah. obviously, like, something's not right. Right. Honestly, I would refuse to answer any questions until they told me what was going on. I don't think I would stop talking because I want to know what's happening. Yeah, you probably wouldn't stop talking. And they would become my best friend. They would. All of them. Everyone is John's best friend, just so you know. I, I, don't tr- I, I really don't try. I just I love think, people. Yeah. They you, love me. You're, you're right. They do. They do. They love you. I'm just it's kidding. It's very true. I'm just kidding. But no, but seriously, though, I, would, I wouldn't stop talking until I found out what was yes, going on. Yes, I think it's very strange the way this whole situation kind of went down here. And it brought up red flags to the detectives. So the detectives chose to just let the two kind of talk about whatever they were going to talk about. Michelle began to talk about the deep love that she had for Joe and how they had just gotten back from Vegas. They were supposed to get married, but she forgot her wallet, and that's why they came back to that trailer. They were supposed to go back to the trailer, but they were going to stop at the house to surprise everybody, but then that's when they ran into police officers. In the other car, McEnroe tells the story a little differently. He said that five years ago, he met Michelle online. They were both a part of a writer's group and that they had similar writing styles, so they kind of connected with each other. McEnroe, only having seen Michelle's profile picture, which wasn't a picture of herself, just her eyes. So from this, he's going to ship all of his belongings from North Carolina to Carnation, Washington. So I thought this was a little bit of a strange situation. I think that he seems a little, that's a little bit of a desperate move. I feel like it's they just love each other way too much. Like, I don't know. It's That's well, weird I, to me. Well, hold on. Let me continue. Okay. When McEnroe gets to North Carolina, he realizes that Michelle lied to him about a few things. Um, first, her age. She's a little bit older than she said she was. And her weight. And McEnroe is going to admit to police officers. I mean, I think this is a weird thing to start off your conversation with with law enforcement when there's police around it's bizarre they were even having this conversation but McEnroe said he wasn't upset that michelle was overweight or that she was older but he was upset about her lying to him about it but eventually the two get over it or he gets over it and now they're in love and have been in a relationship for five years so i mean it is a five-year relationship well you know what this sounds like Catfish. This, this sounds like catfish, yeah, yes. it does. But it also sounds like it's writer's block. Get it? No. No? Both in, like, the writing thing, they have writer's block. What I'm trying to get at is, like, they both are coming up with this, like, cockamamie story to police. Oh. And it's just, like, they have nothing else to say. Oh, ru- I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I mean, it took a while for me to get there, but okay, now I'm so I'm that I'm here, But I they like literally it. had nothing to say. Like, that's them being nervous for whatever the reason is. I see what is. you're saying. I mean, I think that they just wanted to... They're painting a picture right now, is, is what I'm seeing And happening. it's definitely not working. Yeah, it's a little interesting. So McEnroe is going to say that it's not just Michelle that he loves. He also loves the Andersons, that they were like his family. He actually calls Wayne and Judy dad and mom. So throughout this whole interview with the police, that's what he's going to say. Well, that's nice. That's very nice. At least he's acknowledging the fact that, you know, they support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So both did agree that they were going through a rough time financially. They had both lost their jobs and mom and dad were being nice enough to let them live in the trailer for free. Both Michelle and McEnroe did mention Buck and how angry he was that the Andersons sought out legal action to remove him from the property. The detective in Joe McEnroe's car decided to shift gears a little bit. He asked the thin man with long, stringy, dark hair just what happened on Christmas Eve. McEnroe said everything was fine. Just before 3 p.m., he and Michelle decided to visit mom and dad and tell them that they were headed to Vegas to get married. They were very happy, and the couple left to start their drive. McEnroe did mention that he asked to borrow gas money because the two were still out of work. In the other cruiser, Michelle recalled the same story, almost verbatim. So you didn't call your parents to wish them a Merry Christmas then? The detective asked. And the woman, in a tattered black sweatshirt and black basketball shorts, said no. She rarely talked to her parents. So I thought that was weird because, no, your parents are going out of... You live a quarter mile away from them. They're letting you live there for free. You go to tell them you're getting married. But then you say you don't call them for Christmas? Like, I just... That's weird. Yeah, like, even before this question was even asked by police or the detective, I should say, I feel like they're... The first weird thing is that they, on Christmas Eve, decided to get married and drive to Vegas. Yeah. Like, I don't even think that they would have, like, they probably would have been like, hey, you know, it's Christmas, why don't you spend it with us or whatever. Like, I don't think it would have gone down that smoothly. No, I don't think so either, especially when they're both out of jobs and going nowhere fast. And and then you got to ask for gas money. It's just like, the whole thing just doesn't make sense to me uh, so far. Right. So the cop had to ask Michelle to give her response again, because... When she said she rarely spoke to police officers, her response was overpowered by the helicopters circling overhead. But again, she didn't ask the police officer what was happening or where her family was. And that is when he finally asked her, Do you ever wonder what's happening here, Michelle? Would you ever hurt your family? And all she said in return was no. While he was having a conversation with Michelle, the detective gets a phone call. He is told that his fellow law enforcement officials had learned a lot by questioning friends and family of the Andersons. They found out that Michelle had been exhibiting erratic behavior lately. She used to be a sweet, shy girl. However, in the last few years, she seemed to suffer from anxiety and bouts of depression. Her already poor social skills grew in measure. She would often get angry and blow up at whoever was in front of her. Her biggest point of contention seemed to be her family. First was her issue with Scott and his wife. Michelle would tell anyone who would listen that she was not a fan of Erica, that he had changed since he'd got married. When Scott and Michelle were younger, they were very close. And when Scott became a father of his own, his priorities completely shifted, and his sister didn't seem to fit in or understand that she didn't fit in. On top of this, Michelle also claimed that Scott owed her money and refused to pay her back. Michelle was also mad at her parents. It seemed that the Andersons had really had enough at this point. They told Michelle and McEnroe that they would have to start paying rent and their bills, because at this point, both of them are out of work, but they're not doing anything to try and find work. Michelle sits in front of the TV all day, and McEnroe just plays on the computer all day. 
So they're saying you need to actively try to start looking for work. And we've had enough. We're cutting you off and you have to pay rent. Completely reasonable for two 29-year-old people. <laughs> Absolutely. When Michelle would talk about her brother owing her money or her parents asking her for rent, she would become paranoid and talk about how everyone's trying to take her down. Now that the detectives had this new information, he is going to completely change the way he was questioning Michelle. He asked her about the relationship with her brother, and Michelle finally is going to show emotion. She begins to instantly cry. She begins to tell the detective she missed the way her relationship used to be with her brother before he got married. Then she began to scream about how he owed her $40,000 and was refusing to pay and that she'd never be able to afford a lawyer, so she'd really never get the money back, but no one was listening to her. And when the detective, who was acting like he was siding with her, asked her the specifics about the loan, she was unable to answer any of his questions. So this whole $40,000 thing seems kind of shady, but the police officer is going to sympathize with her and try and make her feel comfortable about it. So she continues opening up. And this is when Michelle admitted that she did get into a fight with her family on Christmas Eve. Again, her mother and father were talking about the couple either paying rent or being kicked out of the trailer. Michelle said she panicked, and in the middle of the fight, she went out to her truck and she grabbed her handgun. She just kept repeating that her parents weren't listening to her. At this point, the detective exits the vehicle and gets the attention of the detective in the car with McEnroe. When the man comes out, he lets him know that these two are now suspects. They should be pressed for questioning, but he should be careful because they may still be armed. The detective with Michelle was unable to get more information out of her, but when the detective in the car with McEnroe pressed him with the information that Michelle had already told the other detective what had happened... He finally caved and he said, I did it. I shot him and I shot mom. The two were arrested at the scene during the trial of Joe McEnroe, which was very bizarre due to he, he has a speech impediment, which isn't what makes it bizarre, but he speaks extremely low during his entire trial. So you can barely hear what he's saying and it makes it almost impossible to listen to. So it's almost like a a mumble, really. Yeah, I mean, he's using it for his defense, kind of like that he's a beaten down man. He blamed um, his mother for his crimes and his actions and the way that he was. It was kind of part of his defense scheme. He also cut his hair. He looked very clean cut. It was a completely different thing. And if you're interested, I know that um, there is another podcast I know that sometimes it could be controversial because some people feel certain ways about it. But there's the podcast Sword and Scale who did, I think, an entire episode on the court case of Joe McEnroe. But it's the crime and the victims that we kind of want to focus on for this episode. So it's during this trial, even though he is going to talk very low, that we are going to hear the horrific story of what actually occurred on Christmas Eve of 2007. But before we get into it, we want to take a break to hear from our final sponsor, FabFitFun. 
FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box service that's amazing. And its winter box is finally here. I think that this is definitely my favorite box yet. You can treat yourself to items like a hydrogel eye mask, Thrive Cosmetic Eye Brightener, a Sherry Matthews Acupuncture Jade Roller, or an amazing color, blo- amazing color block throw from Mark and Graham. If you're looking for a fun new gift to give to your loved ones this holiday season, I promise they'll love you forever if you surprise them with a FabFitFun box. It's the gift that just keeps on giving. I have to say that this winter box was incredible. The throw blanket, like I said before, is my go-to snuggle up with a glass of wine and watch Investigation Discovery blanket. It's just really so soft and beautifully made. John and I actually have both been using those under-eye hydrogels for our under-eye puffiness. I know John likes them. You know, we got to keep things fresh. I, yes, we do. We have to be ready. Um, on top of all of that, I got a beautiful lipstick, a silver necklace with a circle pendant, and that jade roller is amazing for boosting blood circulation and helping products absorb better into my skin. It really was a box of endless treasures. I can't sing its praises enough. This box has a retail value of anywhere from $298 to $336, and I got it all for $49.99. This subscription service is amazing for discovering new brands that will easily become staples in your home. Remember, you will always get full-size products of everything in your FabFitFun box, whether the product is for fashion, beauty, home, or fitness and wellness. You can get all of these great products and more when you sign up for FabFitFun today. FabFitFun boxes make amazing gifts for the holidays. Use our code TCC to get $10 off of your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting a box for a life well lived. Use promo code TCC to get $10 off of your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Go to FabFitFun.com and use code TCC. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So on the day of December 24th, 2007, Michelle and her boyfriend, Joe, are going to walk the quarter mile to her parents' house, not to celebrate the traditions that her family had honored her entire life, but to confront them about their threats of rent and where they stood on the money that Michelle believed her brother owed her. Michelle Anderson had a 9mm handgun wrapped in a sweatshirt that she was carrying in her hands. While Michelle went to confront her father, McEnroe went into the back family room to where Judy was wrapping presents. He began to help her to distract her from the fight that was about to happen. He began to help her to distract her from the fight that was about to happen. While they were working, they heard a really loud pop, and McEnroe followed Judy as she ran into the living room, where they made it into the room with Michelle and her father. In front of them, they saw a horrific scene. Michelle was pointing her gun at her father. It appeared that she had tried to shoot him, but she had missed. He was begging her to stop and asking her what she was doing. Judy was frozen in terror, but then she felt McEnroe swiftly walked past her, and without a second thought, he pointed a gun to the man that he called Dad and shot him in the face. 
Wayne Anderson died immediately. Judy turned and ran away screaming, but McEnroe tore after her and shot her in the neck in the family room. As she was gurgling on the floor, eyes wide, staring up at him, McEnroe looked down at her, apologized, and shot her in the head. After shooting the people, they both called mom and dad. Both Michelle and McEnroe showed no remorse. They continued with their plan. Next, they wanted to confront Scott. But in order to do this, they couldn't raise any alarms. They needed to erase all evidence that Wayne and Judy were just killed in the house. And this is why it looked like someone cleaned up all the blood. Because the two did. They used towels to clean up the blood and burned them afterwards. McEnroe was able to carry Judy to the shed, but Wayne was too heavy, so he had to drag him. After they cleaned the house and removed the bodies, they set up chips and dip and waited for the arrival of Scott and his family. They were set to arrive at 3 p.m., and it was 2. Once Scott and his family arrived, the six members of the family sat around the living room and talked for two hours. When Scott asked McEnroe where his mother and father were, and McEnroe responded by saying they were just out back, Michelle stood up, almost like this was when she was supposed to. Her gun was pointed at her brother, and she was asking for the $40,000. Scott didn't back down. He stood up and told his sister he wasn't taking her shit anymore. And as he began to walk towards her, she shot him in the mouth, the bullet exiting his chin. This shot would end up being fatal for the young father. But to this day, we are unaware of how long he was alive after the shot and how much he heard of what was about to happen next. As Scott hit the ground, Erica screamed and ran towards the phone. She was shot in the back by Michelle. Erica is able to reach for the cordless phone and dial 911. And this is the call that was placed at 5 p.m. Just as Erica is going to say, which is later determined as, no, not the kids, McEnroe grabs the phone and hangs up. Michelle looked at her boyfriend and told him that she didn't have any more bullets left and that he would have to do the rest. This is when McEnroe emptied the rest of his clip into Erica's chest and head, killing her in front of her children. Nathan, scared, jumped into the lap of his mother, and Olivia clung to her right side. Michelle and McEnroe argued. What should they do? They eventually agreed that they can't leave any witnesses, and McEnroe reloaded and shot the two terrified and innocent children on Christmas Eve. In the trial, it will be revealed that the true motive for the crime was not this mysterious $40,000 but inheritance. McEnroe stated that on the stand that if Michelle's entire family died, she would inherit the 11-acre property, and the two, as he put it, could live happily ever after. But luckily, this wasn't the case. And in 2015, Michelle and McEnroe were both sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. See, this story is, I think from the start, I think most people that are going to listen are going to say, well, we kind of figured that the two, you know, the two did it right no, from the I start. No, I think it could have been other people. I think it was interesting because 
it could have been Buck. It could have been Mary Victoria. Like there were so many yeah. interesting dynamics within this family and within this story. I think the most shocking to me is, you know, to reload a Magnum is not a simple. It's not. I mean, it is simple, but it's not fast. It's not like you're, um, you know, I mean, you know, you release the drum, the drum comes down, you pretty much shake it loose, all the shells come out, and then you have to reload it and, you know, and spin it and just keep reloading it. Yeah. I feel like these kids were just there. Terrified. Terrified. And then he's like staring at them loading up, getting ready to shoot. I know. It's so And that's what's crazy to me. It's just also so sad because nobody, obviously nobody had to die, but... The children were innocent. So was Erica. I think this was just this plan that Michelle had hatched because she was mentally unstable and she wanted someone to help her do it. And that's where her boyfriend, Joe McEnroe, steps in because Michelle really only is going to shoot the people that she claims that she's super angry at, which is Scott and Erica. She doesn't kill anybody else or take a shot at anybody else. Well, in my in my opinion, a kill is a kill. I mean, she did, you know, they both no, killed people. No, they definitely planned it. Um, I think that, you know, killing children is e- even lower than anything else that you could ever do. Or killing a mother in front of her children. Right. I mean, it's terrible. And we don't know how, like I said before, long it took for Scott to die. He could have witnessed that entire scene. These things, unfortunately, these things happen. So. I know, and it's very sad, especially when it happens around the holidays, because... It's just when family's supposed to get together, but it was used against them in this case. And it seems like they were fractured a little bit, so. Yeah. So, before we go, we just want to thank all of our new Patreon subscribers from the past two months. So, we're going to go through the list. So, those new Patreon subscribers are uh, Mildy, Cassie Anderson, Dana Ladani, Christy Adcock, Virginia Muriel, Julie Patrick, Stacy. Jackie Gonzalez-Dahl, Lindsay Dragoon, Pamela Dunbar, Genevieve, Allison Moon, Matt Butler, Michael Ryan, Carrie Simpson, Mary Zellers, Michelle Gray, Danielle Hardy, Mac, Brittany L., Kate, Katie Graham, Uber Chic Polish, Lori Smith, Lindsay Robinson, Jessica, $15 champion. Jessica, champion. Maureen Jones, Rebecca Brunson, Joan Haber, Autumn Furlong, Arena Kay, Erin Whittier, Ashley Tulliver Jones, Robin Vero, Brandy Inamunga. I think I did that wrong, Brandy. I'm sorry if I did. Emily Kaffenberger, Tammy Sauter, and Angela. Thank you guys so much for contributing to Patreon. And again, if you guys want to help us out, you can either leave us reviews on iTunes or you can donate to us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We also have um, PayPal up because some people were asking to just donate one time instead of over the month. So if you do want to give a one-time donation, you could do that at um, through PayPal to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. All right, guys, thank you so much, and we really hope you have an amazing holiday season, and we can't wait to come back on January 12th, recharged, ready to go, but we will have those two episodes up on Patreon. So have a happy holidays, guys. Don't mess us too much. (laughs) Bye. Bye, guys.